Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, you are so great, and um, Lord, we just praise you uh, for your word this morning. And Lord, this is a, a tough text. There's a lot here. Uh, it's very rich, and uh, Lord, my words are, are inadequate to just unlock all that you have for us in, in here this morning. And I pray that they would be your words and not mine, and uh, we pray your spirit would just be active in our hearts and minds, uh, just to, to show each one of us uh, what you would have for us in these 10 verses. Um, Lord, we are humbled before you. I pray we would come with humble and open hearts and uh, just uh, seeking you this morning. We love you and we praise you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies is uh, kind of in college as a, as a, a teenager was the movie Gladiator. And um, a lot of you are probably familiar with the movie. Some of you may not be. But for those of you who aren't, it's, it's based on this character named Maximus. Who Maximus is uh, the general of one of the emperor's uh, armies in, uh, in the Roman Empire. And it was kind of placed at the time that the Roman Empire is at their peak. And they're, they're just finishing kind of their expansion and, and kind of the conquest of all these uh, warring tribes on the outskirts of, of kind of the known world. And Maximus is a very accomplished general. He's the general of the Army of the North. And when you open the movie, he's in a very, very high position, very powerful man. Uh, but not long into the movie, you find him uh, betrayed and a slave and fighting for his life in the Colosseum amongst a group of other slaves. And Maximus and his colleagues are, are really, I mean, they're outgunned. They, they've been giving some very crude weapons, some crude shields to defend themselves with, and their opponents all have chariots and horses, uh, kind of the latest weaponry and armory of the time. Uh, it's very clear that Maximus and his colleagues aren't expected to have much of a chance. And as the chariots and horses are surrounding them and circling them, Maximus starts to bark out commands. You see that kind of the difference in this, uh, kind of this match than most matches in the Colosseum as Maximus was one of the most accomplished soldiers of his day. He understood warfare both just from a hand-to-hand -hand, uh, standpoint, but also from a strategy standpoint. And he started to bark out commands to all those around him, and he said, look, if we stick together, and if you listen to me, we're going to be fine. We can do this if we stick together. And his colleagues at that point have a choice. They can either listen to Maximus, they can submit to him and trust that he knows what he's talking about, and that he's going to take care of them. Or they cannot submit to him. They can say, I don't know who this guy is. I'm not going to trust him. And I'm going to strike out on my own. And I'm going to do this for myself. Well, through the rest of the scene, we see both of these scenarios kind of play out. Um, there are a couple guys that don't trust Maximus. And they go off on their own. They try to just take on the army of themselves, their opponents themselves. And it, it doesn't go well for them. They get picked off kind of one by one pretty quickly. But for those who, the, the, those who submit to Maximus, who kind of form an allegiance with him and align themselves under him, they end up winning the battle, and they find themselves victorious at the end of the day. So my question for you and for all of us this morning, as we start uh, taking a look at James chapter 4, through verses 1 through 10, is where does your allegiance lie? Who are we loyal to this morning? As was the choice for Maximus's colleagues, the gladiators, uh, there were grave consequences um, depending on who they chose 
uh, their elite to align themselves with. If they chose to align themselves with Maximus, they ended up living and were victorious. But if they chose to stay independent and align themselves and just with themselves, to trust themselves, uh, it didn't go well for us. So James is going to address our allegiances and some of the consequences of uh, our choices in James 4, verses 1 through 10. And I'd like to look at it this morning in three different parts. Uh, the first part, we're going to look at determining our allegiance. Uh, secondly, we're going to look at the consequences of misplaced allegiance. And then thirdly, we're going to look at writing misplaced allegiance. So if you would, let's open our Bibles together this morning and let's read uh, James 4, verses 1 through 10 as we start. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that, has made, that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, as we start uh, kind of our first bullet point this morning in determining our allegiances, I'd like to begin in verse 4. <clears throat> you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, we remember from James 1 a number of weeks ago that James is addressing his letters to, uh, this letter to the 12 tribes who are scattered among the nations. So he's, the 12 tribes are Jews. So he's addressing it to Jewish people that are scattered kind of throughout the world at this time. And this statement of uh, being an adulteress would have been very, very impactful for Jews. See, Jews, uh, the nation of Israel, was often called an adulterer in the Old Testament. So just this statement alone would have kind of perked their ears up. It would have gotten their attention. See, in the Old Testament, God had uh, rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he blessed them time and time again. And all that he asked in return was their allegiance, that the nation of Israel would worship him and him alone. But they continually rebelled against him. And they sought other gods, they worshipped other gods, and, and did, really did their own thing. They lived for themselves. So God cared for the nation of Israel as, this, um, as a husband would care for his wife, very lovingly. But the nation of Israel rebelled as an adulteress. So that's the picture that James is uh, painting for us this morning. He characterizes this behavior as friendship with the world. Now, friendship is the Greek word philea. Uh, which is to love or having an emotional attachment to or to have a deep affection for. And the world James is speaking about here is the spiritual reality of the system in which we live. And it's reality that's broken. It's, it's ruled by Satan. John talks about this reality in the book of 1 John, uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the, wor the, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. Friendship with the world is having a deep affection for temporal, uh, temporal sinful pursuit instead of God and his will for us. It's in essence saying, I don't need God. I can do all this on my own. I'm going to be fine on my own, and I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue, just as the Israelites did in the Old Testament. So a great illustration of this from Scripture is the, is the parable of the prodigal son that many of you know from Luke 15. So a father had two sons in this parable. It's a parable that Jesus was telling uh, his disciples. And one son uh, honored his father. He did what he said and, and fathered, followed every one of his commands. But the other son was rebellious. He decided he wanted to do his own thing. He knew what was better for his life. So he asked his father for his share of the inheritance, and he went off and he lived, by, he lived his own way in a faraway country. And Luke tells us he squandered his property in reckless living and on prostitutes. See, in pride, he felt he knew it was best for himself. So he rebelled and became a friend of the world. And he loved and pursued the desires of the world and all the, uh, uh, the things we read about in 1 John, that 1 John passage. And James makes it clear that this choice of allegiance is not an either-or decision. Uh, he, you know, in, chap- in uh, verse 4, he says, uh, those who are a friend of the world are an enemy of God. So you, you can't be somewhere in the middle. You're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. There's no in-between. It's, if you think about uh, kind of an example from our day-to-day lives, if you have a defendant at a trial and he's about to receive the verdict from the jury, he's either innocent or he's guilty. He's either going to have to face the legal consequences of a, of a guilty verdict or he's going to walk out the door and be a free man. There's, there's nothing in between here. And sometimes we like, to, we, think, we like to think there's a gray area, but Scripture makes it very clear that there's not. So where does your allegiance lie this morning? Do you find yourself pursuing your own desires and your own interests above God? Would you characterize your life as friendship with the world, or would you characterize it as aligned with God, as being in allegiance to him? So as we've said, our, de- our decision of who we choose uh, to align ourselves with, who we choose to make our allegiances with, have really uh, very uh, uh, stern consequences. So now that we've discussed determining our allegiance, let's move on to our next sec- section and discuss some of the consequences of misplaced allegiance. And let's go back to chapter 4, verse 1 for this. James says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So it seems James has received word from these churches that there are a lot of conflicts uh, abounding. And he's concerned about them. He wants to address them. So, and I, I want to just take a minute that, and say that not all disagreements in the church are, are, are sinful. And, and Rodney's going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But, you know, God's created us all different, obviously. We're, we're not all going to have the same opinions about everything. We're all going to have our own personal kind of choices and and things we prefer, which is great. It's what makes life a lot more interesting, right? That's not what James is addressing here. He's concerned with the root cause of why they are warring, uh, or why they are having this conflict. He calls it the passions warring within them in in verse 1. Now, this word passions uh, comes from the Greek word hedonai. It's where we get the word hedonism. And hedonism is is basically uh, a doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the highest good. It's a devotion to pleasure as a way of life. 
An another way to think about it is it's to live a life totally focused on yourself and totally focused on, um, you know, pr pursuing things that you want, that you uh, are going to make you happy. The prodigal son we talked about in Luke 15 is a poster child for this. You know, he demanded his, his share of his father's inheritance well before it was time, just so he could go out and live a life that pleased himself, that he could do what he wanted to do. James' language also suggests he was not only concerned about the root of why they were disagreeing, but also how they were disagreeing. The Greek word translated quarrels here is most often used in reference to wars and battles and warfare. So these are very ugly and vicious conflicts they're having. These aren't just simple, simple disagreements over a difference of opinion. So what could this look like in the church today? I, I was kind of thinking about this, and if we go back to kind of a benign example, you can disagree about, you know, styles in worship. You can disagree about, you know, nuances interpreting a tough passage of Scripture. You can disagree about the paint color choice in the sanctuary. And, uh, you know, if you, if you consider, like, the paint color choice in the sanctuary, obviously some people are going to like Dover white and some people are going to like Arctic white. And that's okay. The problem comes in when you say, I like Dover white. My opinion is far and away superior to everyone else's. Anyone who thinks Arctic white is a better choice is a fool. And by, a way, by the way, I gave X dollars to the general fund last year, and I serve on Y and Z committees, so I deserve to see Dover white. And coming at it from a, a stance of entitlement and um, just kind of a selfish pursuit rather than just uh, a simple disagreement. So those are the kind of things that James is addressing here. And he's really concerned about it, uh, not only from tearing the church apart from within, but also uh, from viewing without, you know, from outside with others who are looking in on the church and seeing uh, what is supposed to be modeled as uh, the body of Christ just looking like a train wreck. <clears throat> so the first consequence of misplaced allegiance is external conflict with others, as we see in verse 1. So let's look on and look at the second consequence in verse 2. James says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So in verse 2, we see a different type of battle. It's, it's an internal battle this time as, an, as opposed to an external one. You desire and you covet are internal emotions that James shows at the root of the external conflicts we just talked about. So murder, fights, and quarrels are all external consequences of this internal battle. And you might be thinking to yourself at this point, well, I'm not really one to kind of uh, push others around or, or you know, make my, you know, force my will upon others. What James is talking about uh, can be just as miserable and dangerous uh, to all of us. A quiet internal war of envy or self-pity results in the same desiring and coveting things we feel entitled to but don't have. These feelings can cre create animosity with others and, and just create tension and uh, unhealthy relationships that can do just as much damage as kind of an external conflict. So even if you're not one... Uh, who is often embroiled in kind of external conflicts, James still has a warning for us here. So we've talked about uh, the first consequence of misplaced allegiance is external, or external conflicts with others. The second is internal conflicts within ourselves. And then the third and final consequence we've already touched on briefly in verse 4. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So this last consequence James has for us 
is enmity with God. It's, it's quite literally being made and viewed as God's enemy. And as we've talked about, there's no middle ground. You're either God's friend or you're his enemy. You're going to fall on one side or the other. There's no gray area in between. And friends, as uncomfortable as external conflicts may be, and as uncomfortable as internal conflicts may be, this third one is so much more grave. I mean, we do not want to be seen. We do not want to be uh, seen by God as his enemy. I mean, I don't have time to read through uh, countless scriptures for you this morning about being God's enemy, but if, if you have any doubts, I mean, you can read the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it's ripe with them. And it's scary stuff. I mean, there, it, it is, it's scary to think about being in conflict with others and being in conflict with yourselves, but falling into the hands of an angry God as is said in Hebrews 10, is a very, very scary place to be. It's not where we want to be found. So how are we doing in these areas this morning? Do you find yourself in regular external conflicts with others that are rooted in selfish desires? Or do you ever find yourself ensnared in internal conflicts and desiring and coveting on a regular basis? Do you struggle with desires of self-pity? or envy on a regular basis. These are all indications of friendships with the world. They're kind of all uh, warning signs. And if, if these are regular parts of your life, it's, they're, they're areas that really um, call for some close examination. So at this point in the letter, James readers are likely feeling uh, a little beat up, and he knows it. Uh, he's, kind of, he's called them out. You know, he's, uh, he's called them out in... They're, they're recognizing, yes, they do, have, they do struggle with friendship with the world. And they're recognizing they're in conflict with others, they're in conflicts with themselves. And as a result, they're in conflict with God. So James uh, gives us some promises and a direction for writing our misplaced allegiance in verses 6 through 10. So this is our third section this morning. We just begin this section with one of the most powerful promises in all of Scripture found in verse 6 but he gives us more grace. Friends, writing our misplaced allegiance begins with God and his gift of grace. With the gift of unmerited favor instead of the judgment and the punishment we deserve as being uh, considered his enemy. This is so countercultural to us today, and I, I, this is something I struggle with all the time. I mean, in America, we're, we're always uh, kind of bombarded with this idea of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, if you just set your mind to it and you go after it, you're going to be able to accomplish whatever you want. Well, James makes it very clear here that that's not the case here. If, if we are going to write our misplaced allegiance, it has to begin with grace. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is, a deceitful, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3.10-12 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is uh, just a very short uh, sampling from a very long list uh, that I need reminded of on a regular basis. The Bible is very clear that we're messed up, that we need help. And apart from God, we don't have a chance. So guys, we need this more grace that James offers to start. So who does God provide this grace to? 
if we continue on in verse 6, it tells us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, pride and the proud characterize being a friend of the world. It's those who put themselves and their own selfish desires above all else. They think they know what's best for their lives, and they're going to pursue it all, at all costs, just like we saw with the prodigal son. They're their own master, and no one else is going to tell them what to do. Uh, James showed us a little example of this, or a little picture of this, uh, in the second half of verse 2. He, he said, you don't have because you do not ask. And as I thought about this, at first when I was preparing for this sermon, I thought this is kind of a weird place for this verse. I wasn't really sure what he's talking about. But this is just an example of pride, and it really was convicting to me. So you don't have because you don't ask. I mean, I'm going to call the men out here. Men, how many of you read the directions before you start to put something together? And there, good job. Uh, or, you know, how many of you continue to drive around for 20 minutes to the place just around the corner without looking for, uh, you know, a map on your phone or asking for directions? I mean, I, I do this stuff all the time. And the reason is because of pride. And it's the same reason that we have here. We don't ask God for things because we don't want to admit we need help. At least I don't. That's the way that, that's how it plays out in my life. I struggle oftentimes to bring my request to God because I think I can do it on my own, and I want to try and do it on my own. So I'm going to struggle and fight and make a mess of things instead of just asking for God whose who's desires for me uh, to bring my request to him, to humble myself. So this is just another indication of friendship with the world that, that James was talking about in our first couple verses. And it's going to play out a little bit more as we continue on. So God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, a humble person is the opposite of a proud person. They admit they're not their own master. They don't know what's best for their lives and are willing to submit and look to someone else for wisdom and direction. They recognize they need help and they cry out for it. They forego allegiance to themselves and align themselves with someone else who's greater than them. So how do we break free of the cycle of friendship with the world and go about writing our allegiances? In verses 7 through 10, James gives us 10 commands for doing so. So starting in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the first command we come to in verse 7 is to submit. And by submitting to God, uh, th this is another uh, word we can think of in military terms. It's basically aligning ourselves under God as a soldier would align himself under his commanding officer. Um, God's commands and desires would then become our pursuits and desires. So when Maximus was barking out his commands to his companions, they had a choice to make, as we talked about. They could either ch uh, choose to trust him, trust that he knew what they were, he was doing and that he was going to take care of him or not. And, why, and they chose to submit. And, and why did they do it? Because they knew that they were inadequate and Maximus was much more capable than they were. They also knew and trusted that Maximus had their best interest in mind, that he wasn't just going to leave them hanging, that he was going to organize them to win this thing together. So they submitted to him. They trusted him to do that. And guys, I mean, this is... 
it's an example that I, I, you know, I can use, but it's so inadequate. Our God is so much greater than a stupid movie character. I mean, our God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. I mean, he's perfect in every way. And he's promised us in Romans 8, 28, that he's going to work all things to, for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. He is so much greater than Maximus in this regards. He is so much more worthy of our submission and our trust. And by the way, this, this submission is another example of this all or nothing, one, one way or another type principle. You don't, a soldier doesn't just submit when it's convenient, when it's not just going to interrupt their plans. A soldier is called to submit no matter what the situation is to their commanding officer. And submission to God is the same way. And we aren't called to submit or just have selective hearing. I mean, we, we don't just hear the commands to submit only when it's convenient. We're called to submit whenever God calls us. So that's another gray area that we often, uh, it's, it's uncomfortable. We don't like to recognize. I'm, I often ignore it. I'm as guilty as everyone else. But it's something that we need to keep in mind and we need to, we need to recognize. So submission to God's authority and aligning ourselves with him is naturally going to make you an enemy of the world. So we, we talked about it in verse 4. You're either on one side of the battle or you're on the other. There's no in-between. So our next command uh, then is resist the devil, followed by the promise, if we do, he is going to flee from you. He will be the devil. So the word resist here is another military term. It's, this isn't a passive resistance. This is a strong resistance, a battle-type resistance. So by coming, uh, aligning our, as we talked about, aligning ourselves with God, we're, we're therefore becoming an enemy of Satan, and we know that Satan's going to be gunning for us as a result. And Jesus told us a number of times uh, that Satan was the prince of the world and that he's going to come after us. He's going to be out for us. But God promises here, it promises us here that if we resist the devil, he's going to flee from us. And, and Paul also makes another similar promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He tells us that no, uh, there will be no temptation that's going to overcome us that, uh, that we can't endure, that God's always going to be faithful and provide a way out for us. And I would encourage you all, if you haven't memorized one or both of these verses, these are great memory verses to have kind of in your, in your pocket for times of temptation. Promises that God's going to look out for us and that we can endure under temptation. We don't have to fold. Verse 8 holds our next three commands, which again would have special significance for our Jewish reader. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So to a Jew, they, when they hear the word draw near, they immediately think of the, the priests in the Old Testament. The priests would have been the ones to draw near to God. They were the ones that would bring the sacrifices and the thank offerings to God in either the tabernacle or the temple. Israelites weren't allowed to do this on their own. It was just the Jews. So James is really reminding us here of something new. This is kind of a new way of thinking for them. You, don't long, you no longer have to go through the priest. You can come near to God on your own, and God desires you to do that. He wants to commune with you. But James is still uh, reminding his readers there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. He says, cleanse, you hands, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, when a priest in the Old Testament would go to worship God in the temple, he first had to wash his hands ceremonially, ceremonially uh, basically showing an outward purification. And then he would also have to offer a sacrifice on his own behalf as part of an inward purification. And, and James is saying we still have to do the same thing. God still desires us to come before him with a repentant heart and pure of 
outward and both inward, both outward and inward sins, which would mean uh, confessing sins to one another, asking for forgiveness to one another, turning away from sinful behaviors and going down a new path, but also just repenting of our sins before him. First uh, John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And James 5.16 says, a verse you all will talk about in a few weeks, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James is just reminding his readers of that. We're called to confess our sins before God and confess our sins to one another. And both, it involves both an outward and an inward purification, just as it did for the priests in the Old Testament. So James promises if we do this and then draw near to God, God in return promises to draw near to us. And what does this look like today? So the, there's a lot of ways to do this, and I can't go through them all. But the first way that came to mind is just is worship. And, uh, I mean, this morning was a beautiful example. Those songs were perfect for our topic for today. And if you think about worshiping in a way of, of drawing near to God, it parallels very well with what we've been talking about in an attitude of submission. If we're truly going to worship God, we need to recognize that we are down here and God is up here, that he is the giver of all good things and we're praising him for it and we're, and we're recognizing him for it. We're submitting, we're humbling ourselves to him and submitting ourselves as a result. We're thanking him for his many blessings and praising him for just how good and how powerful and, uh, he is, all of his, his, his many attributes. And a second aspect of drawing near to God that's uh, probably one of the first that comes to mind is prayer. So Thanks, uh, prayers of thanksgiving and adoration are going to overlap what we just talked about with worship. Uh, and prayers of confession are going to overlap what we just talked about in, in purifying ourselves before coming before God. But the last aspect that we kind of touched on earlier is, is drawing near to God with prayers of supplication. Once again, he desires for us to make ourselves known to him. He desires for us to admit that we need help, that we don't have it all together, that we need uh, his grace, his mercy, and... Um, and the blessings that he provides. So he asks us to, to draw near to him in prayer and make those requests. I mean, obviously, he knows them all already, but he desires us to take that step, that step in humble submission before him. James wants his readers to know that this recognition of sin uh, should have an impact on the worshiper, which he addresses in his next series of commands in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So James is saying that true recognition and repentance of sin should deeply affect us. And it should deeply affect our whole being. We should be internally just downcast and sorrowful, but we should also be externally sorrowful, externally sorrowful as well. We should ch change this, uh, kind of the emotions that are often associated with pursuing the world, um, this laughter, uh, into uh, just kind of mourning and uh, enjoy to gloom. We should be um, affected as a result of our sin. He's not saying we should be in a continual state of this, but he's saying that it matters, and he wants his readers to realize that. And James' 10th and final command in verse 10 is, is a parallel really to where we began in verse 6. He, he calls us to humility, and then he gives a promise of blessing in return. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the act of humbling yourself is the act of making yourself low before God, but God in his grace promises in return to lift us up. So 
I couldn't think of a better way to close our time this morning than returning to the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, just to illustrate these final principles. So as we talked about in pride, the son rebelled against his father. He thought he knew what was best for his life. He became a friend of the world. He moved to a faraway country, and he squandered his inheritance in reckless living, as Luke described it. His allegiance was misplaced in himself and his selfish pursuits, and the consequences of them left him starving and alone when his money was all used up. We pick the story back up in Luke 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now we see the son humbled himself. He humbled himself before his father and he chose to submit to his authority. He resisted the devil's temptation to maintain his independence and to, uh, and to hide his failures uh, from his father in shame. He confessed his sin before heaven and before his father and asked, for both, uh, and asked forgiveness from both with a heavy and repentant heart. He got up and went to his father. He drew near to him and made himself and his requests known to him. And how did the father's son respond? We'll pick the story back up here in verse 20 where we left off. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring a fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So how does his father respond? He responded by giving him more grace, by drawing near to his son and exalting him as God has promised to, to do for us. So let's return to our, our question we opened with this morning. Where, where do your allegiances lie? Where do your allegiances uh, lie this morning? Who are you loyal to? So as was the case for Maximus' campaign, as we talked about, we have a choice of who we align ourselves with, and that choice has uh, very grave consequences one way or another. The great news for us is even if we have made poor choices of allegiance in the past, we have a God who gives us more grace. When we humble ourselves before God, submit to him and his authority in our lives, recognize our sin, and confess it before him in brokenness. He looks past all the poor choices we've made and waits with open arms to accept us and to lift us up. Allegiance matters, friends. Let's not misplace it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you once again for this, this passage and, and this reminder this morning, Lord. We we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your love, for your mercy, and for waiting for us with open arms, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, I would pray that, um, that we would think uh, very closely this week about our allegiances and who we're aligning ourselves with. If, if we're aligning ourselves with the world, if we're making ourselves friends of the world, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just convict us of that and that we would be... Uh, that we would just be motivated to change um, 
out of just a pursuit of your love, being overwhelmed by your love. And Lord, I pray um, if there's someone here who uh, knows they're a friend of the world and doesn't really know what it means to fully align with you, Lord, I pray that um, uh, you would just place it on their hearts to find out more about it and um, that uh, they would just come to know you and uh, a, a full and um, just uh, uh, knowing the fullness of your love and, and all that it entails, Lord. We love you and praise you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.